Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, as Donald Trump finally faces some potential consequences after a whole lifetime of criminality, you know, keep in mind that that um, according to The New York Times, Donald Trump became a millionaire at age eight thanks to his father's tax fraud scheme, right? And he's been implicated but not charged with all sorts of money laundering and mob-adjacent stuff for for many years before he got into politics. Um, anyway, on, on this uh, this historic week, we will be joined by Marcy Wheeler uh, for a double segment on what's going on in Manhattan, but also the various criminal investigations elsewhere that are working their way toward Trump. Um, a friend of mine from the dog park was talking to her the other day. She's underwhelmed by the charges, which I get, right? There isn't anything here that we didn't know about since uh, 2018. Michael Cohen has went to prison for this same scheme, catch and kill scheme. But it is remarkable, nonetheless, that the indictment of a former president on uh, 34 counts related to this conspiracy with a media outlet to suppress negative stories during a historic presidential campaign is seen as a as a, as a nothing burger. And and that's this is the thing that's been so consistent with Trump. He just commits crimes in the open. And then it, it gets boring. It gets boring. Like we're all like, okay, there he is committing another crime. Um, I would also just point out that those who say that this is a weak case out of New York, and there are many saying that, um, don't know what evidence Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg is sitting on and prepared to present. And I don't believe that Bragg would take this kind of risk uh, unless he thought he had a pretty pretty tight case. So. I think a lot of people are going to prove, um, are, are going to be proven premature in their hot takes, at least premature. Anyway, before we talk about all of this with Marcy, I want to touch on just a couple of items that you may have missed. Um, what should probably be the biggest story this week, maybe, uh, was a report by ProPublica published on Thursday that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has for years, for decades, been receiving valuable gifts from a right-wing billionaire without disclosing them as the law requires. They passed this law after Watergate. Uh, it requires various federal officials, including Supreme Court justices, to file financial disclosures, and that is not happening. Uh, Joshua Kaplan, Justin Elliott, and Alex Majerski reported that Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow has been showering Thomas and his wife, the, uh, the insurrectionist Ginny Thomas, with largesse again for decades. They write, and I quote, for more than two decades, Thomas has accepted luxury trips virtually every year from the Dallas businessman without disclosing them. A public servant who has a salary of $285,000, he has vacationed on Crow's super yacht around the globe. He flies on Crow's Bombardier Global 5000 jet. He has gone with Crow to the Bohemian Grove, the exclusive California all-male retreat, and to Crow's sprawling ranch in East Texas. And Thomas typically spends about a week every summer at Crow's private resort in the Adirondacks. Um, they add the extent and frequency of Crow's apparent gifts to Thomas have no known precedent in that modern history of the U.S. Supreme Court. I, you know, this court is so corrupt. And a tiny, tiny silver lining from the last 10 years or so about this around this court 
for the theft of Merrick Garland's seat in 2016, the sham investigation into uh, Kavanaugh's accusations of sexual harassment and assault, the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett when voters were already at the polls rejecting the GOP. The little silver lining is that um, very few people are still pretending that we have a legitimate high court. Um, The Supreme Court justices do not adhere to any ethics code. And I think that, um, I think Americans would be surprised by that, right? Uh, Judges on lower courts have to adhere to a code of ethics. But CNN reports that, and I quote, key Senate Democrats are calling for next year's funding for the Supreme Court to be conditioned on the creation of an ethics code for the justices. Speaking of dark money in our politics, The Guardian reports that, and I quote, three of the most prominent right-wing groups that spread election denial lies and advocate for restrictions on voting rights in the U.S. have joined forces in a secret attempt to woo top election officials in Republican-controlled states. Um, According to the report, again, from The Guardian, led by the Washington-based conservative think tank, The Heritage Heritage Foundation, the groups have created an incubator of policies that would restrict access to the ballot box and amplify false claims that fraud is rampant in American elections. The unstated yet implicit goal is to dampen Democratic turnout and help Republican candidates to victory. By the way, sometimes that goal is stated and is explicit. There's been several times that um, Republican lawmakers have said the quiet part out loud and just said, yeah, we're passing these laws to give us a better chance of winning elections. Speaking of red states, CNN reports that at least 417 anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in state legislatures across the United States since the start of the new year. It is a new record, according to the ACLU. It is already more than twice the number of such bills introduced all of last year. It's only April. Um, education and healthcare related bills this, uh, and we can just to translate that, that means like, don't say gay bills, um, bills banning gender affirming care and stuff, uh, are quote flooding in at unprecedented levels along with a renewed push to ban access to, well, okay, hold on. Along with a renewed push to ban access to gender affirming healthcare for transgender youth, there has been a heavy focus on regulating curriculum in public schools. You know, just like abortion, like the Republicans' position on abortion, and just like with Donald Trump, this is not popular with normal people. It's not popular with normal people. But the GOP GOP base, um, they won't let the party waver from whatever nonsense is being promoted by the right-wing media. Right? It's really become a, the tail wagging the dog. And um, it would be devastating for their electoral prospects, if not for the structural advantages that they enjoy, especially in the Senate, and, um, and relentless efforts to control election infrastructure and suppress Democratic constituencies. Those are the wild cards. Make it un- unclear if they will ever have to face the reality that they can't win on performative culture war bullshit. They can't win. A fair election, but they're trying to make sure we don't have them. And with that, let's uh, take a quick break and then come right back with Marcy Weller. Stay tuned. Let it be. 
Welcome back. We're joined now by Marcy Wheeler. When I invited her to do this week's show, I told her that there was nobody I wanted to talk to more on the week in which what is uh, likely or hopefully Donald Trump's first indictment came down. Marcy, of course, writes about legal matters for a number of publications and at her own site, emptywheel.net. Marcy, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Good to be on. I should note that Marcy has been bullish on the prospects of Trump being held accountable, arguing at times uh, with other legal analysts on social media that the process was moving ahead at the justice systems, typically slow pace, so I think she's been borne out. Um, Marcy, I want to begin by getting your reaction to two lines of kind of criticism or concern about this case uh, out of New York one of which seems more legitimate than the other. By the way, if you're reading the headlines this morning, it's all over the place. So the New York Times has a piece by Charlie Savage, a surprise accusation bolsters a risky case against Trump. Uh, Times has another piece by a couple of prosecutors. We finally know the case against Trump, and it is strong. Then you look down, Ian Milheiser has a piece, who's been on the show many times, the dubious legal theory at the heart of the Trump indictment. Richard Hazen has a piece at Slate saying Donald Trump should probably should not have been charged with this felony. So it's all over the place. Um, okay, so Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg charged that Trump committed felonies by falsifying business records to conceal another crime. Uh, without that element, without concealing another crime, then falsifying business records is a misdemeanor. Um and while the indictment and statement of facts refer to the possible violation of New York state laws, the central kind of accusation in the case pertains to federal campaign finance violations. Uh, that's the crime the false records was concealing, were concealing. Uh, and according to Ian Milheiser and others, it's unclear in the New York state statute whether covering up a federal crime would trigger that felony charge. Marcy, your thoughts on all of this. Is it a weak case? Or is it a strong case? Is it at least a case that the right-wing Supreme Court can easily undo? Well, I, th I think that I would add to the summary that you just gave, which is to say when he was asked at his press conference afterwards, when Alvin Bragg was asked what the underlying crimes were, he said, I don't have to list that, but three crimes include, one, the federal finance uh, campaign finance crime, which you mentioned, also a New York state misdemeanor law, which says you can't fraudulently run somebody 
for as political candidate. So in other words, arguing that Cohen, David Pecker, and Trump were lying about who he was to voters. And then the third one, and this seems to be getting missed, um, he said that AMI, National Enquirer basically, um, engaged in document falsification in 2016. And that's in this statement of facts. It describes that um, the the payment that David Pecker, AMI, made to the doorman who was claiming that Trump had fathered an illegitimate child and the payment to Karen McDougal, both of those were accounted for improperly within AMI and also possibly Cohen and AMI were going to do this shell company to sell the rights to the Karen McDougal story. Um, there may be falsified documents there. So there's that third underlying crime, which which is solidly a New York state crime. Bragg may have other tax crimes in mind or even witness tampering. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that it is unexciting because we've known these facts since 2018. Right. And so, and I think there is a good question why you wait five years, six years to charge it, um, five years after you learn about it in 2018 to charge it in New York state. That's a good question. Although at every single level, I mean, Republicans are saying, well, you know, DOJ could have charged it. Well, you know, why wasn't this treated like Hillary's, uh, dossier violation? And in response to every single one of those, I've done this. You can point to unprecedented uh, corruption on the part of people like Bill Barr, even Rod Rosenstein. Um, Republicans on the FEC have refused to hold Trump accountable for any campaign finance violations. There are at least 22 credible violations they've just blown off there. And so, you know, at some point you say if Republicans institutionally refuse, like will will bend over backwards, will engage in four years of cover-up to protect this one very simple hush payment because he paid because he paid a woman he slept with once, once, $130,000, right? <laughs> yeah. um, then, <laughs> you know, then, then at that point, I'm, I'm, you know, then I'm like, just charge him. You know, just charge him. If Republicans to you know refuse to hold him accountable, if Republicans at every level have protected him, have protected this ridiculous hush payment um, that Trump could have paid out of his own pocket and it would have been legal, but instead Trump and I, this is the other thing I keep saying is um, sell your peanut farm, right? So when Jimmy Carter ran for president, he had to put his peanut farm into a trust so that it couldn't present a conflict, and Trump not only claimed to do that, but didn't do that. Uh, we know that Trump's very large multinational peanut farm created all sorts of conflicts for the entire time he was president. We know that he had a bank account in China. We know that he uh, was getting other investments from Asian countries. We know that he was using foreigner, you know, foreigners were staying at his hotel in DC to profit so that he could profit off of it. Um, all of that was was unprecedented and yet we're yawning about it because we're so used to Donald Trump's corruption. This is this is more of the same, you know, and it feels boring at this yeah. point. But it is 
very much more of the same. It is the same corruption. And and one other point. I mean, Trump's biological person was charged for the first time yesterday, but Trump's corporate people, his foundation in 2019 and Trump organization last year, have already been found guilty of these same kind of slush fund violations. And so it's actually not surprising that Trump himself is charged with the same crimes that his corporate persons have already been found guilty of. Um, and maybe that's a easier way for people to think of it. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. The, there have been kind of ubiquitous references to this as a hush money case to pay off Stormy Daniels. Is the fact that he is being charged in a scheme to kill multiple damaging stories before they came out, is that a very different thing or is that kind of a distinction without much difference? It's different in terms of the evidence. So before he was charged, Trump uh, sent Robert Costello in because he thought that they thought that Robert Costello could bully up, uh, could damage Michael Cohen's uh, reputation as a witness, and therefore convince Alvin Bragg he doesn't want to he doesn't want to charge this. Somehow, it has escaped the notice of everybody that both Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks testified to the grand jury. They're they're not exactly hostile witnesses to Donald Trump. Neither is neither is David Pecker, right? right. Um, and so by, by, by laying out the scheme more broadly, started in 2015, you've got AMI with their fraudulent document practices in 2016. You've got both having pled guilty because AMI entered a non-prosecution agreement in 2018 federally as well. Um, you've got two of the three people involved already having, uh, made their legal accounting for this. Um, but it also, I think, for some of the evidence that, you know, the people had forgotten, even though we all knew about this, we learned about this in 2018, about the um, doorman who claimed there was an illegitimate child. Well, that's one of several instances in the statement of facts where Trump agreed with everybody, let's delay backing out of this deal until after the election. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the numerous pieces of evidence in the statement of facts that make it clear that this was absolutely about the election. It was not about, you know, protecting Melania or anything like that. There's there, you know, unlike the John Edwards case, there is abundant evidence that the reason this happened, uh, the reason this was an affirmative effort starting in 2015 was to get Donald Trump elected. Yeah. And the, I mean, it's an inherently contradictory defense where he goes, oh, I didn't I didn't sleep with that woman. And then also, I would have paid her off anyway, just to just to contain the damage of my relationship. Does the fact that Michael Cohen went to prison for his role in this um, catch and, and release scheme, does that have any uh, catch and kill scheme have any impact on or give us any insight into how this case might play out? You know, I I. It is true, and Republicans are going to say this, um, that Michael Cohen went to prison for a lot of things, and that the primary things were his own financial dealings, right? Um, the, but the one of the new, I, I mentioned already that Trump, for whatever reason, decided to send Robert Costello in as his single witness to the grand jury, and, uh, and that, I think, probably backfired, but... Um, because in the statement of facts yesterday, there was an allegation we knew from the Mueller report that uh, Costello, on Rudy Giuliani's behalf, reached out to Cohen and tried to get him, tried to kind of 
you know, suggest that he might get a pardon if he, if he didn't plead guilty. Um, there was a second incident of that. There was a June 2018 incident of incidents of that in the statement of facts yesterday, which is new news, at least to me. Um, and which, which is interesting because you've effectively got a witness tampering effort going into, you know, going to a time that's less than five years ago. Um, and so I think the circumstances of efforts to persuade Cohen not to plead guilty are interesting and, and do make it um, more criminally interesting. Of course, the other thing that Trump was trying to get Cohen not to share were, were the details about the Trump Tower Moscow deal, which went to the heart of the Russian investigation. But, um, but yeah, that puts both of those on the table. And I think that that makes it a little more interesting. Jake Tapper had um, CNN legal analyst Carrie Cordero on his show um, on Tuesday, same day that the indictment came out. They were discussing the case Marcy, I want to take a quick listen to what she had to say. And uh, Kerry Cordero, um, I mean, you heard uh, Jim Trusty there uh, talking about what he called the frailties of the case, uh, what I've heard other people, including you, talk about, um, how strong this case may be or may not be. Um, your reaction now that you've had a chance to go through it, um, is it what you thought it was going to be, and are you unimpressed. It, it is what I thought it was going to be uh, in terms of focusing on the payments that were made, the falsification of the records, and really tied to the payment that was made to Stormy Daniels. Uh, in terms of a case that's being brought against a former president, it's a little underwhelming. Um, mm. there's, there's not more to it. Uh, there's not more violations tax violations. Um, there's not an incredible new set of facts that we didn't know about publicly. It's really the facts of this case as they have existed for basically almost seven years. So she said it was uh, underwhelming. In other quarters, it's this massive test of our democracy. And I guess those two things can, can both be true. Um, do you have any thoughts about the media coverage of this indictment? Um, I found it striking how much punditry there was about the indictment while it was still under seal and nobody knew exactly what it contained. There's been a, just a like kind of O.J. Simpson, white Bronco kind of coverage of tr Trump's travel. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the white Bronco thing, right? Like it was Trump is a reality TV performer and he knows how to play the audience. There was a moment um, before the actual arraignment where Caitlin Collins from CNN was like, oh, Trump has choreographed all of this. And I'm like, well, if he's choreographed all of it, why are you playing into that? Like, right. defy, I mean, and I will say NPR did a really good job. I mean, some people uh, were hesitant to cover Trump's speech last night, which was a barrage of, of Bullshit. grievances. It was yeah. just nuts, even for even by his standards. But some people refused to cover that live. I think that was a good choice. I think NPR made a series of very good choices throughout the day. Um, and had, as a result, very good coverage. But I think CNN did a terrible job, and it was the it was the white Bronco again. And it's you know these people are like it it is addicting to uh, make Trump the hero of your reality TV show when and this was the this is one of the crazy things about the coverage is that as everyone was watching New York, the um, DC Circuit 
refused to stay the subpoenas for people like Mark Meadows and Ken Cuccinelli. So these are subpoenas that will uh, waive executive privilege. These are Trump's top advisors. And that will have a far more, that, that, that's a far more important legal development than the arraignment in New York State, whatever you think about the charges in New York State, because it means that the January 6th case in D.C. is getting to a very, very critical period and probably moving closer to charges there. And I think those charges, whatever they are, are A, going to surprise people and B, are going to be something that gets a lot closer to the heart of the damage that Trump has done to American democracy. Okay, I want to switch gears and talk about those other investigations that we know are underway. Um, We're going to first take just a, a short break. Folks, stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Just a perfect day Drink sangria in the park and then later, when it gets dark, we go home. Just a perfect day. Feed animals in the zoo. Then later, a movie too. And then home. And we're back with Marcy Wheeler. Um, so you alluded to um, the filings, uh, progress that's going on in the D.C. courts. There appears to have been quite a lot of movement in recent weeks, um, which was largely overshadowed by the, uh, the drama surrounding the Manhattan case. Um, a lot of movement in special counsel Jack Smith's probes, dual probes into Trump's alleged obstruction of the government's efforts to retrieve classified documents from Mar-a-Lago, um, and also his efforts to overturn the election, what we would call an attempted coup in any other country. Marcy, just before we get into even some questions on this, can you just kind of bring our listeners up to speed with with where these these cases are at as far as we know? I know you keep a close tab on on all the public filings. Okay, well, I'll also say that we expect Fannie Willis to charge also maybe in the next six weeks in the Georgia case, and that'll be a fairly broad election crimes case. So that's right out there as well. And again, something that that, that goes far, that gets uh, much closer to the core of the damage that Trump has done. As for the two Jack Smith probes, um, in one There are Secret Service agents who are going to testify on Friday. Uh, His lawyer, Evan Corcoran, testified last Friday and had to turn over, uh, in both these cases, there's, Lordy, there are tapes. Um, He had to turn over transcriptions of a conversation that he had with with Trump. Um, And CNN and Washington Post have both reported that basically all the people who testified voluntarily last year have been brought back in to testify before the grand jury. Those are pretty good signs that Jack Smith is going to charge the documents case. Um, I made an argument the other day 
based on Washington Post's story of people being asked about specific documents, that the reason you get asked about specific documents is because uh, prosecutors are going to charge specific documents. That only happens in an Espionage Act case. So we are getting close to um, the possibility that the former president will be charged at least with obstruction of um, an effort to get back classified documents, but I suspect that there's a pretty good chance that, I mean, it's a, it's a big lift to charge a former president with Espionage Act violations, but um, there are certainly signs that they may go may be going there. And that case is very close. I mean, that, you know, I think, I think the biggest hurdle in that case at this point is how you get the remaining documents back. Uh, DOJ has told, you know, starting in October, they told Trump that they believed he still had documents. The problem is, they have no recent probable cause to know which of his properties he has them stashed at. And so, you know, what are you going to do to get the documents back such that he can't then do more damage if you don't get them all back? And so I, I suspect that that is the biggest hurdle in the documents case so far. So that's that case. And, and I, I don't know if you want to ask any questions before I go to the Jan 6 case. Um, so they're related. My, I think my questions are about both of those cases. Okay. So then the Gen 6 case, as I said yesterday, and this happened overnight. So like, um, this is a Beryl Howell subpoena, um, that she approved this. So it goes back a couple weeks because her tenure ended in mid March and, um, Trump had appealed the subpoena of people like Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows, Ken Cuccinelli, John Ratcliffe, uh, O'Brien, and there's one or two others, uh, Stephen Miller, um, uh, Dan Scavino. So these are really key advisors to Trump who were involved in, um, for example, his, his messaging, his, his targeting of Mike Pence. Um, and so basically Trump appealed it, the um, DC circuit had people brief overnight. So this is literally the night before Trump is arraigned. And um, by yesterday afternoon, according to CNN, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, the first of those people, was brought into the grand jury to testify. And these, these you know, the, the, we know that these people are going to be asked what Trump said to and about Mike Pence. We know these people uh, are going to be asked about um, how Trump targeted Mike Pence between January 5th and January 6th. We suspect that they're going to be asked questions about security for D.C., uh, possibly Trump's attempt to use the National Guard as his posse to go attack the Capitol. Um, this is what we're looking at with the January 6th case. And then, I, you know, I think um, people forget or don't believe that Trump has, has exposure at the crime scene. And even on that front, I mean, the, the Proud Boys case is finally drawing to a close in the next week and a half, maybe. Um, and I think the Proud Boys case will dictate how DOJ approaches a bunch of other people, people like Alex Jones, maybe Roger Stone. Um, and those people implicate Trump. They really do. And then there's um, there was a verdict yesterday um, in a case... Uh, of the co-conspirator of the guy who tased Michael Fanone and Michael caused Fanone. his heart attack. And that case, 
uh, uniquely, as far as I remember, of all of the January 6th crime scene cases, that case, DOJ put together the evidence of how Trump and Rudy Giuliani's speeches at the ellipse on January 6th affected this guy who an hour and a half later went on to almost kill Michael Fanone. And, and um, if, you, if, if DOJ is going to make a case that Trump incited violence, that's the way they would do it. And they've done it in that case. And, and the verdict, the remaining verdict in that case came out yesterday. Um, so, you know, again, that's, that's, that's something that is going on at the crime scene investigation that I think needs to come before you charge Trump. The one other thing that's out there on the January 6th case, besides, you know, getting Mark Meadows in front of a grand jury is there's a, there's an obstruction statute. It's 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2 that has been used to charge hundreds of crime scene people. And I've argued from 2021 and the January 6th committee started arguing in late 2021 and in their referrals referred it that that's the crime that you would use to charge Trump with. And the D.C. Circuit has been considering an appeal of the application of that to January 6th for six months, um, just to this guy who uh, was charged with it. And so I don't know whether Jack Smith would wait or go ahead and charge Trump uh, before the DC circuit rules. Um, but that that is one other thing that is out there that I think um, might cause a delay in actually charging Trump. Now, you have uh, referred to the fact that Trump's legal team have been losing motion after motion trying to block former aides and lawyers from testifying uh, before Jack Smith's grand jury. Or is it grand juries? Does he have two going on? Separate grand juries? Yeah, he has. Yeah. It, it is understood that he has at least the one for January 6th and the one for the documents case. The, the January 6th one is also... Or, or there is a grand jury investigation as well of financial related issues. Um, the understanding is that's on the January sixth grand jury, but I, you know, I, I don't know for sure on that. But there is it's at least secret. those two grand juries. Okay, so um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of Trump's lawyers being compelled to testify specifically under what's known as the crime fraud exception to the. Uh, attorney-client privilege that most defendants enjoy? Yeah, so the only one who's been, as far as we know, required to testify under a crime fraud exception is is Evan Corcoran in the documents case. He's the guy who, uh, who wrote but did not sign personally a declaration saying that they had searched, they'd conducted a, a, a diligent search for documents in response to a May 11, 2022 subpoena. So he's the only one who testified with crime fraud exception. Rudy Giuliani, for example, was subpoenaed late last year, but he was uh, at least reportedly only asked about his retainer agreement, as if they were trying to understand how he was paid and uh, the limits of his attorney-client privilege. Rudy's phones, if you recall, a billion years ago in in April of 2021, so almost two years ago now, his phones were seized as part of a Ukraine-related investigation, but the way in which they sorted through his phones 
anything they they did a they did a privilege review of those contents back in 2021 that's done so if you know at whatever time january 6 got um got probable cause that rudy giuliani was involved in this they would have been able to go and get that content uh with no further privilege review and there there were maybe I don't know, 70 files on that, that the special master in that case said, I don't really think they're attorney-client privileged. And and then after she said that, Rudy said, okay, yeah, you can give them to prosecutors. So um, there's also John Eastman, who had an extended attorney-client um, fight with the January 6th committee and and um, in for a number of emails lost that fight with the January 6th committee. I assume that DOJ uh, piggybacked on that and got all those same files. Uh, and those are key files. Those show John Eastman and these, and that was another crime fraud ruling by a judge um, that, you know, that showed that uh, the, the, the judge, and this is a, this is an LA judge ruled that John Eastman and Donald Trump probably obstructed January 6th um, in part, you know, because of the illegal uh, request they made of Mike Pence. This is the kind of stuff that Mark Meadows will be asked about this week, right? Or next week. Um, and then in part by leading all of Trump's mob to have this false hope that something would happen. So um, those are those are the lawyers that we know have had some of their content shared. But then there are people like, um, a really key person to keep an eye on is Boris Epstein, who, um, has been around Trump forever, but couldn't get clearance in the White House and back in 2017, uh, was a key part, but not in a legal role, was a key part of the effort to over, overturn the election during the transition. And then as soon as Trump started having these document problems, Boris Epstein kind of swooped into Mar-a-Lago, declared himself a lawyer, or at least declared to the press that he was uh, playing a legal role. And um, and and played played a key role in things like the subpoena response when DOJ came to collect still classified documents. His phone was seized in September. I think that um, his status, whether he's a lawyer or whether he's a pundit, uh, I think is is much more uh, ambivalent than Rudy Giuliani's was. So I, you know, it's unclear how much protection he actually gets. But he also is a person who, in the documents case, could well be exposed himself, could well be charged as a co-conspirator or something like that. And so um, he's he, we don't know what's going on with him beyond the fact that they seized his phone as part of the January 6th investigation. Um, but he is somebody to keep your eye on because he's kind of right in the thick of it. His status, whether he played a legal role or something else, I think, uh, is really up to dispute. And, uh, and he, you know, he, he's one of those people who was involved in both January 6th and the documents case. So Marcy, before I let you go, I want to just touch, touch briefly on the case that you, uh, referred to earlier down in Fulton County, Georgia, where prosecutor Fannie Willis is, um, investigating Trump's efforts to convince Georgia Republicans um, election officials to, quote, find the votes he would need to overtake Biden, and also the scheme to send false electors to D.C. Obviously, uh, in court, the fact that a different case is playing out in some other jurisdiction 
should not be relevant, but this isn't a typical defendant. It's not a typical case. Do you think the fact that Bragg went first with this case in New York changes the calculus for Fannie Willis at all? And are there any indications in the public record about what we might expect in that case? Um, I don't think it changes her calculations. I think that the delay in her case probably has really obvious explanation, one of which, by the way, is that the January 6th committee did not release transcripts before Willis's grand jury expired. So she had to read through all the transcripts, figure out if it was going to affect her case. They asked uh, Christina Bob to testify because Bob to January, or we, we assume it's because Bob told the committee that she did have a role in Georgia when um, Georgia believed she didn't. She, she was actually a witness to Trump's call to Brad Raffensperger. And so they've asked her to testify. She said she wouldn't. Um, so that that's the kind of thing that created a delay, an unnecessary delay. If January 6th committee had just released transcripts earlier, both the DOJ investigation and Fonnie Willis's would have been better off. Um, and then... Uh, last Tuesday, the legislature in Georgia went out of session, and I, it, you know, she's made some savvy decisions, uh, like waiting out the legislature. They passed a new law that gives the state some oversight into local DAs. It's not about her, but uh, waiting until after them is a way to avoid antagonizing the legislature. In addition, you know, she's got to continue to prosecute all the cases in Fulton. Otherwise, there's going to be a backlash that she's also prosecuting Trump. And so the grand juries that are sitting have been pumping out indictments, as I understand it. Anna Bauer, who is with Lawfare, has really great commentary on this. And, and this is she's been watching it quite closely. She's like, yeah, they've been really busy doing other crimes. Um, but Trump basically issued a lawsuit trying to invalidate the effects of the grand jury and the judge in that case gave Willis until May 1st to respond. And Willis is going to have a huge incentive to charge before that, before she has to respond on May 1, because if she charges, it moots Trump's entire lawsuit. And so I, I would be unsurprised if she charged before then. And she's going to charge election cases. She's going to charge, um, and it's not just going to be Trump. It's going to be Trump and um, probably Rudy and, you know, maybe Boris Epstein, all the same people that are exposed in January 6th, as well as some local Georgians. And this is something I think people forget, is that in both the Georgia case and the and Jack Smith's January 6th case, there are some senior Republicans who are legally exposed because of stupid things Trump did. And um, I don't know how many of them are actually going to be charged, but to the extent that they do get charged, that's going to have uh, some impact on how the Republican Party deals with Trump going forward. I don't know what that is. I don't think anybody does know what that is, but I think it's something that people forget. Marcy Wheeler, I think we are about out of time, but I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. Great to talk to you. I'd also like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Ross Story for supporting the show. Um, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I'd like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. We're all good at